All right, well, we're back in our series uh, this morning. Um, I'm describing it as the written word, kind of as, as, we're, as we're prepping to Christmas. I guess this is like most of your last Sunday, right? Uh, how many of you are, are headed, headed home? Is this the last Sunday? Exams? You're in the midst of exam week right now? Wow. Yes, no, maybe? Okay, that's what I thought. I've been wrong about these things before, so uh, I kind of have my head in the Bible most of the week. No, I'm just kidding. Um, great. Well, exam week this week, and uh, just thankful, thankful for a, a, a good semester. You guys are like, hey, it's not over yet. I've got to finish strong. Then I can think about Christmas, right? Um, but anyway, we're glad to have you guys here and, and um, continuing along with us in our study on the written word. We're going keep it, to keep it going through the, through the break. And, um, and so, I, yeah, I really just want to take some time uh, in between, kind of after our, our one series and then into next semester to, to deal with this topic of, of Scripture. Um, do we have the PowerPoint back there? Oh, I've got, the, I've got the clicker. What am I doing? Let's get that up. Let's get that up there. Point it back there. Point it back there. Well, I didn't do that. Oh, did I do that? Yes. Good. What would it be if we didn't have a boundless Sunday where I was fidgeting with the PowerPoint clicker? It makes us feel at home, right? Yeah, so this series, calling it The Written Word, because um, I want us to think together, meditate together for a series of weeks on what the Bible actually is. And I know that sounds kind of elementary, but it's very important that we establish convictions for ourselves about what the Scriptures are. We want to deepen our devotion to Scripture by understanding what the Scriptures claim for itself. This is a book unlike any other book in existence, and it's, it's God's very words to us. And so everything rises or falls, like we've been saying, and what you do with this book. How you think about it, whether you believe it or not, whether you orient your life underneath it or not, everything rises and falls on the Scriptures. And so... Just a quick review here where we've been. We've looked at some of these things that, that Scripture's claim for itself. And where did we start? Week one. Inspiration. Yes, inspiration. What is that? God breathed. Yeah, right. It means that the Scriptures are, are, are breathed out by God. They're, they're sourced from God himself. They're from him, given to us. Yep, and where does the Bible claim it? Let's check. I know it's everywhere, but a couple key texts. 2 Timothy 3.16. Where else? 2 Peter 1, right, good, good. And why does this matter? Why does inspiration matter? Why do we need to know that the Bible is actually from God, breathed out by him? Wow, deep convictions. What's that? Yeah, the, the scriptures are true. They're from God. They're sourced from God. They're God's very word to us, his revelation to us, which implies that this is a mercy for us, right? Because we're running from God. And so he's condescending to us, revealing himself to us, because we're dead and blind without him in our sin. And it implies that he wants to relate to us, too, and that he wants to relate to us through these written texts. And so we looked at inspiration, right? And then the second week, we looked at what? Inerrancy, which means, what's that? Fully true. The scriptures are fully true. They're without error. Um, they're not errant, and they're not going to lead you astray. They're fully true. Yes, and this scripture then, since it's fully true, it's from God, fully true, it should define reality for us, right? We have to take its word above our own word. We are not inerrant. The scriptures are inerrant. So, 
is completely trustworthy. That was uh, week number two. What did we cover after week number two? What was week three? Authority, right. The Scripture's authority. And what does that mean? Yep, Scripture's authority. When, scripture's, when we say that Scripture has authority over us, we mean it, has, it, it creates obligations, right? Because the Word is from God. He has authority. And it's wholly true. And therefore, as His creatures, it creates obligations in us, over us. In other words, his word isn't advice. It's not like a, a, an opinion of many opinions. It is the highest and most comprehensive authority. His word's binding on all of his creatures. And we don't really, that we must obey or we must face the consequences, and this is every human, must obey or face the consequences of, of not. And last time we looked at um, the power of Scripture, the power of Scripture, so we said not only does his word have authority, right, and it does, but it also has the power to enforce that authority. God's words are an active power. They're God's very power. And we said it's, it's able to accomplish all that God intends. That's what we mean when we say God's word has power. God's word is able to perform everything that God intends it to perform, to accomplish all that he intends it to accomplish. And what was a, what was a key verse on that? Isaiah 55, 10, 11, yep. And what does that say? All right, you got to do it a little louder for everybody. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, his word's not going to go out. It's not going to return void, right? It's not going to come back empty. It's going to accomplish everything God intends, Isaiah 55, 11. And scripture, the scriptures tell us how powerful its words are, Right? What were some examples of, of the things of that this what, examples of the power of God's words? Okay, creation of the world, it's a pretty big deal, right? Uh, creation of all there is out of nothing, uh, and that was accomplished by His words. What else has to do with creation? It sustains the world. Yeah, His words sustain everything there is. Okay, what else? Yes, God's words reveal the human heart. God's words going to expose you and. Clear, clarify what's actually going on inside you, what your problems are, better than you know what your problems are. So the scriptures are exposing. What else? Okay, they're, they're hardening. Yeah, that's sort of the, the negative side. If, you, if a sinner rejects God's words, they continue to, the power is not null and void. They're actually a hardening force, like Isaiah 6 talks about. Actually hardening, hardening you against the truth. But positively, what do, scripture, what do scripture's words do? They don't just harden. What else do they do? It creates converts, right? The scriptures themselves bring conviction. They create, in the, in the hands of God, they create converts. What else? Beyond just creating converts, it doesn't stop there, right? It continues to grow us and transform us. God's word has power to do that. What else? And defeating his enemies, right? So it doesn't just harden them, but actually brings a defeat, brings it home. Uh, one little word shall fail him, like we talked about in, uh, I actually sang that, so not going to do that again, Okay. Uh, Martin Luther's hymn, One Little Word Shall Fail Satan, meaning the word that comes from the mouth of Christ, defeating his enemies. Amen. So, that was we looked at that. That was week four, the power of Scripture. And this week, we're going to look at number five here. We're going to look at something called the clarity of Scripture. The clarity of Scripture. If you want a big word, perspicuity. Whoa. Just means clarity. Okay. Perspicuity. Clarity of Scripture. Looking at that this morning. The Scriptures are clear. And praise God for that. 
And what do we mean by that? When we say, we're talking about the scriptures being clear. Uh, we're talking about that the content of the Bible is inherently accessible and understandable. Okay? The content of scripture, what we, have, what we hold in our hands, what's inside of the contents here, are inherently accessible to us. They're not like too far away that we can't get to them. They're clear, they're accessible, and they're comprehensible. They're understandable. Accessible, understandable. Kind of one of layman's version of this. Uh, when God speaks, he doesn't stutter. Okay? His words are clear. He doesn't mumble. They're accessible to us. They're clear words to us. He's able to communicate, in other words. He's able to communicate to us, and they are able, his words are able to be understood. It's a clear word. Like we said, you might hear the term perspicuity thrown around, and that's the, that's the big word that means the clarity of Scripture. And now, as soon as we jump in here, when anytime you start talking about clarity and how Scripture's clear, that raises questions, right? Like, why doesn't it always seem clear when I read the Bible? It's like an obvious question. Uh, that's one. What about those hard passages that we encounter, like Romans 7? We're going to try to address some of that uh, this morning for sure, and this sermon might even raise a lot more practical questions for you about how to read your Bibles, how to study the Scriptures. And so let me go ahead and say now, in case you're waiting on it, um, I'm not going to talk about that a ton, because I'm going to do an entire message on that, at the, which will be the end but the beginning. So it'll be the end of the series, and I'm going to do it at the beginning of next semester. Kind of confusing. Why would I do that? Because uh, I think everybody's going to want to hear that and people are going to be disappointed that I taught it over winter break. Okay? So I'm going to use it, I'm going to do that as a conclusion, kind of how to read your Bible. We're talking about clarity, that the scriptures are clear, and so a very, uh, uh, an implication off that is, okay, how do I make the most of its clarity, right, as I learn to read, my, learn to read the scriptures. So, I'm just going to get that out of the way at, at the outset here. And this morning, I want to focus just our understanding around what we mean by this word clarity and what the scriptures actually mean. Um, by clarity. And like everything we've studied so far, this is an extremely encouraging attribute of Scripture. Because from cover to cover, the Bible assumes that it is accessible. It's a, it assumes that it's able to be understood. And that's because God wants to clearly communicate with us. And He's able to do that. God wants us to know His heart. He wants us to know His mind. He wants us to know what He's up to in the world. And he wants us to know how we can participate with him in that as believers. And so he's made clear promises, clear warnings, given us clear directions. He's clearly motivated us all right here in this book. And so that means the last thing that God wants his people doing is running around like they're on a wild goose chase. Like not really knowing what God said or what he's doing or following their promptings or following what it, God's been clear, Right? It might feel like your life is a wild goose chase sometimes, but, it's, but that's on us. That's not on him, right? That's because we don't know this book very well. He has been clear, and that's because he loves us, and he wants us to live stable and fruitful lives as we follow him. And that is super encouraging, okay? So this morning, we're going to look at uh, this attribute of clarity. We're going to look at it under three main headings. Um, going to explore it under these, these three headings. 
And where I want to start this morning is, is unpacking a little bit about how Scripture talks about its own clarity, okay? It's a logical starting point. But the funny thing is, when you, when you look at Scripture, it's like the Bible just assumes this, right? It just assumes that it's clear. So, you know, it's inspired by God, it's come to us, and therefore it's clear. God's able to communicate. So we're going to start here under our first heading and look at how the Bible just assumes that its writing is clear. Our first heading, the assumption of Scripture's clarity. Like I said, this basic assumption permeates the whole of the Bible. So let's work through a number of examples here, and, and let's go way back and look at some assumptions in the book of Deuteronomy. Okay? Book of Deuteronomy. If you know anything about this book, it's essentially a covenant document for Israel as they are entering the land. Kind of a renewal of the covenant. And the Lord reminds them of how he rescued them from Egypt, how he became their king, and now he's calling them to live faithfully before him in a covenant relationship with him in the land. And throughout Deuteronomy, it is assumed that the words that God speaks to them are very clear, they're very accessible, and they're very understandable to them. For example, all right, for example, it's clear enough for parents to understand and instruct their children, teach their children to follow Yahweh. Okay? It's assumed that Scripture is clear enough Deuteronomy especially is clear enough for the parents to understand it, to write it on their hearts, and then to teach their children to obey its stipulations, to instruct their children with the truths that are found there. Give you a chance to write that down before we jump over. Clear enough for parents to understand and teach their children. And I know I blitz through a lot of these texts, so if I'm willing to send you any, of the, any and all these notes um, if you want them. I don't feel like you got to get them all down. Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 7, he says, And these words that I command you today, i.e., the book of Deuteronomy, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. So what's he assuming here? Yeah, this is accessible. Moses assumes that the Torah, in this case, Deuteronomy, is clear and understandable to the average Israelite parent. So much so that he can teach his child what is required for faithful obedience to Yahweh. Okay? He assumes, too, that the kids can get it, that the kids can understand at least enough of it to trust the Lord and obey Him. His word is accessible to everyone, parent and child alike. All right? Here's another example, this time from the Psalms. Not only can the average parent uh, understand and apply the word, but the inexperienced in Israel can do that too. It's clear enough for the simple to understand and become wise. The scripture is clear enough for even the simple to understand and become wise. All right, look in Psalm 19.7. He says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. These are just different ways of referring to the word of God. The testimony of the Lord is sure, and here it is, it's making wise the simple. So someone who's simple, inexperienced in life, is able to apparently hear the word, read the word, come in contact with the testimony of the Lord, 
and it's able to make that simple person wise. Okay? Another just assumption there in the Scriptures. And again, just piling on examples here, the fact that it's assumed throughout the, throughout the Scriptures that the Bible itself is clear. And it's so clear, in fact, that just reading it out loud can bring a nation and a king under conviction. All right, so we could say it's clear enough to bring repentance, wide-scale repentance, just from reading it aloud. And I love this story, 2 Kings 22. I don't have this one on the screen because it's a little bit longer. So as you're writing that, you can turn to 2 Kings 22 here. I know you're trying to do three things at once, trying to write, turn, and listen. <laughs> but you guys are smart. Okay. You can do it. I'll wait for you, though. All right, better yet, as you're turning there, I'm going to tee it up for you, okay? Give you a little context. In this story, I know it's, it's kind of hard to believe it, but in this story, Israel had, like, lost the law, right? They just lost, they just, like, it wasn't, they didn't, it was, it was buried, right? Their, their scriptures that they had, there was a time in Israel's history when they straight up lost the book of their law, the, their Bible. So just imagine that, okay? The temple's in disrepair, Little King Josiah comes into reign, doesn't know much, but he knows that, like, okay, we've got to get this place in order. He starts dressing up the temple. He's trying to turn things around. And so there's a money box in the temple, and he's, like, going and emptying it so they can start using the money for, for, getting the, for what it needs to be used for to repair the temple. And then all of a sudden, in that money box, there's a book, right? And they find this book. And they come and they bring it out, and... 2 Kings 22, I'll pick it up in verse 3. It says, In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan the son of uh, Azaliah, son of Meshulam, the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that's been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the temple. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are in the house of the Lord, repairing the house. That is, to the carpenters, to the builders, to the masons. And let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that's delivered in their hand, for they deal honestly. So he's basically saying, right, like, go get the money, count it, use it for the repairing of the temple. All right, so that happens. Verse 8, And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king, and he reported to the king, uh, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, And Hilkiah the high priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Achaim the son of Shaphan, and Achbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Aziah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people, for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. What happened? Uh, 
found a book. <laughs> you want me to read it to you? Sure. Uh, here's the law. Ah, like, we are about to be dis- dis- disintegrated, right? Like, the wrath of the Lord is kindled against us. Just reading this book aloud was enough for everybody to realize that they were about to bring God's wrath down upon their own heads. That's clarity, right? That's clear speech. And finally, let's just consider one more evidence, all right? The authors of Scripture themselves, like the ones who wrote it, they understood and they believed that they were writing clear, accessible, understandable words, right? They expected to be understood, just like you do when you communicate. You don't communicate and then think, what if they understood? You know, like you expect, and you're talking with your friends, to be understood. So when they write, they expect to be understood as well. Let's look at a few of these here. Oh, should put that up earlier. Now you're going to be writing. Clear enough that the authors expect their readers to understand. We'll come back to it. We'll come back to the slide here in a second. Luke, Luke 1, let's pick it up in verse 3. Here's his preamble to the gospel. So he's saying, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Why? That you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. I'm writing the book of Luke, and then volume 1, and I'm also going to write volume 2, the book of Acts, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Luke expects he's going to understand that, that, that Theophilus and the wider readership that Theophilus represents that they're going to understand and have certainty according to what he's been taught. All right, similarly, 1 John 5.13. John writes a letter to a congregation so that they will have assurance. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I expect that my writing is clear and that when you read it and you believe it, you're going to know that you have eternal life. It's assumed is my point. It's just everywhere in the Bible, these things are assumed. The biblical authors knew they were writing clear, understandable, followable documents for their recipients. All right, why did I hammer that home? Well, because normally when we talk about the Bible being clear, like we have questions about that, right? You you read your your personal Bible reading plan? You ever had a question about the clarity of Scripture? Like, what does this mean? If the Bible is so clear, why does it feel like it isn't sometimes, or a lot of the time, you know, that I'm reading it? Well, that brings us to our second heading, and let's look a little more carefully at about what we'll call some of the complications to Scripture's clarity, right? Some of the complications to Scripture's clarity. Again, there's some nuance here, but paint with, a broad, with broad strokes, here's a good way to think about it. Problem is not with the book. <clears throat> the problem is with us. That's exactly what Jesus intimated when he confronted the religious leaders of his day. When he was interacting with the Jewish leadership, Jesus never says the scripture is too complicated for them to understand. Right? What does he say? He said he, he rebukes the leaders for their ignorance. Okay? He says, have you not read? Like, it's right there, you know? Over and over and over again. Matthew 12, 3, Matthew 19, 4, Matthew 21, 42, Matthew 22, 29, 31. Like, it's, it's all throughout. That's just one, one gospel. Have you not read? 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 I mean, it's just over and over again. The scriptures are plain. 
So it's, the problem is not with a book. The problem is with their own dullness, not the Scripture's clarity. In fact, what we see in Scripture is that unbelief is the principal complication. It's this blindness of the soul. So think about that. Think about that metaphor of blindness. The sun could be shining at full strength, noon, right, in the middle of summer. And if you're blind, you go outside, you're not going to see it. doesn't mean the sun's not shining. It just means you can't see it. So that's unbelief. It's a blindness of the soul, and it obscures the Scripture's clarity. It complicates it because it's, it's on us. It's on the receptor. We don't have the eyes to see it in our, in our unsaved state. So let's, let's look at this first complicating factor when it comes to the clarity of Scripture. Unbelief. Okay? Unbelief. Through a text up there, Romans 1, this is probably familiar to you, but, but Paul's writing there, and he says that while the truth about God is self-evidently plain, like it is in, in open sight, that unbelievers see it, and then they suppress that truth. Look at this. Romans 1, Pastor Farrell covered this weeks, you know, well, months at this point, probably actually, maybe even years ago. <laughs> My, how time flies. You're like, we know. He's in Romans 7. Uh, that's years, okay? Uh, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, here's how they're described, by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is actually plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. You hear that language? It's plain. It's clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, this is kind of a reflection on Genesis 3, they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So there's that blindness of the soul, blindness of the heart. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Their lights were turned off in their hearts because of their, Genesis 3, rejection of God. And that blindness has been passed down to every heart ever since the fall in Genesis 3. And so the situation, we've talked about this a lot, but, but for, for us, whenever, before we came to Christ, and every unbeliever that's out there now, uh, the situation is really dire because those without the Spirit, those without God's initiative, are actually unable, unable to perceive the truth. Look at this. Paul's saying we, we impart this, this, this revelation from God, this gospel. Paul's saying we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Okay? So who has to teach you the truth? The Spirit. Okay? So it's not taught by human wisdom. There's a divine teacher that's happening here. As we, as we speak the words of truth, the gospel, a divine teacher has to accompany that, teach it by the Spirit. And the Spirit is interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now notice this, verse 14. The natural person, i.e. not the spiritual person, the, pure, the person with the Spirit, the natural person, the person who's not born again, the, the, the non-Christian, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Because, Paul says, they are folly to him. And, so he doesn't accept them, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So, he doesn't want to know them, he doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God, verse 14, and he is unable to. 
He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Those without the Spirit are unable to perceive spiritual truth. Unbelief, okay? Unbelief is a hindrance to the clarity of Scripture. And in fact, like we saw last time, the Scriptures claim that for people who continue to set themselves against God, that, he, that the Lord scrambles His truth even more for those who are set against it. So think of the parables, right? And so this, the first reason that Scripture doesn't seem clear is because someone may not believe. They may not have the eyes to see it. It's the blindness of the soul that can't see the light of truth. But praise God, like we've seen in this study, God can and does overcome this blindness. And if you've trusted Jesus, He's overcome it for you already. If you've believed truth, if if the Bible has made sense to you, if you've submitted to it, if you've perceived your sin, and you've come to believe in Jesus, it's because He did that in you. He turned the lights on in your soul, in that darkened heart of yours. He's made the Scriptures clear to you. Okay, He's overcome your unbelief. But you might be saying, well, then why am I so often stumped when I read the Bible? Right? Like, what's going on there? Why do I feel like sometimes it's still so hard to understand? Well, because another complicating factor is our immaturity. Okay? Or you could say the, you know, the the remaining vestiges of unbelief, right? Or in, 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 our, in our case, immaturity. We'll call it that. Hebrews 5. So when the Lord converts us, we're not immediately glorified. We're not immediately perfected in the sense of, of complete perfection right here, right now. He's converted us to Christ, and in Christ we're perfect. But we've got to work that out now. We've got to grow. We've got to become like Jesus, and that is progressive. Right? It doesn't happen all at once. And so we're being transformed progressively, as Paul says, from one degree of glory to the next. So it's a, it's a, pro, it's a process. And that process includes our understanding of the truth. Does that make sense? And so if we put it on the negative side, our immaturity affects how we experience the clarity of God's Word. This is what the author of Hebrews says. He says that solid food or deeper doctrine is for the spiritually mature, namely for those who have grown in their ability to discern good from evil by constant practice. So he's writing to them. He's getting into the weeds of how Christ fulfills the Melchizedekian priesthood, you know? And he's like, pause, verse 11. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain. Not on our end, but because you have become dull of hearing. Okay? It's not that the scriptures aren't clear, or the word of truth isn't clear, it's, it's the dullness of the hearer. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Milk, in this case, is the basic principles. Solid food is, is deeper doctrine. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he's still a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. In other words, what, what the author of Hebrews is saying here is we grow in obeying what we know now. As we do that, we'll be able to truly understand and appropriate deeper doctrine. In other words, the scriptures will become more clear to us the more we grow, the more we learn to 
appropriate his truth and distinguish between good and evil in our lives. So a backdoor encouragement here is don't be discouraged, right? If you're reading the Bible, you're listening to preaching, you're like, whoa, I don't get that. Like, that's tough. It's because you're young. It's because you're, you're growing in the faith. These things will come over time. So just be patient. We're going to talk about that, about when you're, one, of the, one of the ways to read your Bible is to read it patiently. Okay, patiently, meaning give yourself time to grow and keep reading. Don't give up just because there's a text you don't understand yet. The more you grow, the more you'll understand. All right? But even the most mature among us are not fully transformed yet. Right? Well, here's another text. 1 Corinthians 3, same thing. I forgot to put that one in there. 1 Corinthians 3 says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food. Why? Because you were not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready, for you're still of the flesh. Meaning, the flesh dominates your life, like your envies, your jealousies, your anxieties, your depressions, all the things. Your flesh dominates your life more than the Spirit does. doesn't mean they're unbelievers, but it just means they're, they're weak still. And because of that, they're not ready for solid food. They're not ready for, for deeper truth. There's things that are going to not make sense to them because the flesh is dominating their life. Okay? Just another text on that. Not just Hebrews, Paul as well, 1 Corinthians 3. And so, but, but the point is, even if you are mature, even if you're growing in that maturity, you're still not going to understand everything. Because why? You're not glorified yet. You're not fully mature. We haven't arrived at the full status of Christ's likeness yet. Paul says that about himself. He says that he still looks in a mirror dimly. And that doesn't, probably doesn't make sense, but mirrors were not like our mirrors today. Uh, you kind of the, it's, think about more like the funny house mirrors, right? Like the, the ones that are warped, you know what I'm talking about? I mean, they weren't warped, but I'm saying it wasn't a clear picture that was reflected back to you. So Paul's point is that until Christ returns, we're not going to have perfect vision of Christ. We're not going to know the depths of, of everything we wished we knew. Paul knew he didn't see Christ with 100% clarity. And that waits till glory to complete perfection. So, again, don't be discouraged if you hit text you don't understand. Paul didn't know it all either. But if you think you do know it all, okay, if you carry yourself around because you're a Bible major or whatever, like you know it all, there's humility coming. Okay? There's humility coming. Be warned. There's always more to learn of Christ and following Him. All right. And one of the ways that the Lord keeps us humble, which is another complicating factor for relating to Scripture's clarity, is hard passages. Okay? Hard passages. There's sort of this admission in Scripture that certain passages are tough. Doesn't mean they're not clear, it's just they're not, they're just they're tough. Just because the Bible claims that it's clear does not mean that every passage is equally clear. Does that make sense? For everything we've talked about, I mean, that, that obviously makes sense because we're growing. There are deeper things. And so that means that not every passage is equally clear. There, there are definitely some passages that are hard, harder to understand. Not impossible, but harder to understand. Peter affirms this over in 2 Peter 3. And he's talking about things that Paul wrote, you know, at times are difficult to understand. Let me say we're in one of those texts right now. Romans 7. Okay? But look, look with me here. He says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. 
as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. So he's talking about the patience of God. Paul's talked to you about this already. But then he says there are some things in them, in those letters, that are hard to understand. Okay? They're hard to understand. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Okay, we've looked at this text one other time in this series, but I'm highlighting here that Peter admits right here that, that not every text is created equal. Okay, some texts are harder than others to understand. But now, a few th- quick things to note about this verse. Okay? Let's notice what Peter's not saying here. He's not saying that everything Paul writes is obscure. Sometimes we kind of appeal to this text like, well, oh, Paul, can't understand him. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that everything Paul writes is, is hard. Notice, this, the statement itself implies that most of what Paul writes is not hard to understand. You see that? He says there are some things in the letters that he writes that are hard to understand. Some things, not everything. It's only some of it. Additionally, Peter does not say that those hard texts are impossible to understand. Okay? Or that they're unclear in themselves. Only that they are difficult to understand. Right? It's, it's difficult, meaning then that some of Paul, what Paul writes is hard to understand, most likely because we still need to mature a little bit more to receive it. We're probably a little too dull at times, like we just saw from Hebrews and other places. And in fact, when Peter says here that Paul's words get misunderstood and then they get twisted, he doesn't excuse that. He doesn't say, well, well those teachers, they, they twist Paul, so let's just go easy on them, because Paul's not a very clear writer, right? Paul's hard to understand, so let's just give him a pass, right? Because that's, whew, it's a hard text. No, what does he say? He says they twist these things to their own destruction, meaning they're going to be held accountable for the twisting of what Paul said and their misunderstanding. And then in verse 18, I don't have it on the text here, but in verse 18, he goes on to tell his readers to grow in their knowledge of Christ so that they don't do this. Okay? So if we step back, we can say, yes, there are hard passages. Very hard passages, in fact. So hard that I spend lots of time reading, meditating, trying to figure them out, talking to others about them, right? But why are they so hard? Because in part, I'm still dull, right? I'm still in process. I'm still growing. And as I grow, things become clearer. It humbles me. It casts me more on the Lord, and I'm grateful for that. All right, but speaking of false teachers here, we can add them to our list of complicating factors too. All right, bad teachers um, complicate or they muddy up the clarity of Scripture, the inherent clarity that Scripture has. These teachers like we just saw, twist truth. They misunderstand it. They twist it. So if we jump back to 2 Peter here, I know I wrote down 1 Timothy, but let's jump back to 2 Peter real quick. Um, we'll highlight this last part. This, there's some things in them, in, this, in the Paul's writings that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So false teachers are attempting to twist God's clear word. They're attempting to lead disciples astray. We shouldn't be surprised by this. This is what it means when we're in the last days between Christ's first coming and second coming. They're going to be false teachers. They're going to be trying to twist the truth, deceive the church. Deception runs rampant in the last days. And so we have to be aware of that. 
And that means we've got to be careful. And, and not just false teachers that are running rampant, but even unqualified teachers too. Even these, like, these you know, unhelpful teachers complicate the clarity of God's Word. People that are not, shouldn't be teaching, right? Look at this. Paul's talking to Timothy, and he says, The aim of our, our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and good conscience, a sincere faith. And certain people, certain persons, by swerving from these, meaning swerving from a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith, by swerving from these things, they've wandered away into vain discussion. They desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. These are people that are trying to teach that should not be teaching because... They've swerved away from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, number one. They're motivated by pride. They're motivated by these other things. And that's, when you swerve away from character, when your character is not held in check, you're going to misinterpret Scripture. And so they want to be teachers of the law, but they don't understand what they're saying. They don't understand the thing. They, they teach it so confidently, right? This is why God puts such a premium on sound, qualified elders. This very letter, he's going to go on, 1 Timothy 3 to give a list of, of character qualifications for these leaders. They've got to be able to handle the truth. They've got to be vetted by a current body of elders. And then he says in chapter 5 of the same letter, Timothy, be careful. Like, don't appoint them too quickly. Right? Because of this very thing. Because it can, bad teachers can muddy up God's clear word. A lot can go wrong from a bad teacher. And so God's clear word can seem so complex, it can seem so esoteric, that only the elite can interpret it. Tell you what it means. The YouTube, you know, watchdoggers, right? Like the, the podcasters. Do you know their life? Do you know whether they swerved from a, a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith? Are there a body of elders that are holding them accountable for their teaching? Or are they desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding what they're saying or the things about which they make confidence? We've got to beware of the unvetted podcaster, the unqualified YouTube guy, gal, who aren't held accountable by anybody, and definitely not the elders of a local church. That is dangerous. Okay, A lot of good resources out there online. Amen. Praise God. We use online formats. But you got to be careful because the online portal is full of teachers who are not just false, but sometimes they're just, they're just bad teachers. They're not qualified. They shouldn't be teaching. They don't know what they're talking about. They need to step back. They need to serve the church, develop Christian character, uh, be vetted by body of elders, and then maybe, maybe they should start teaching in their church, right? And then maybe, if they're faithful there, maybe the Lord raises them up to a wider scale thing. All right? I'll get off that box. I just see so much, so much happening in the lives of sheep. So much, so many things get muddied um, because of because we're, what people are listening to. All right? Paul says here that, that even when people's moral lives start deteriorating, it won't be long before their doctrine starts going too. All right, so bad teachers can complicate Scripture's clarity. And also, one other thing that's just kind of a reality is what I'm calling cultural distance. And we're out of time. I, like, massively mistimed this, uh, this talk here. We've got number two. Maybe I'll come back and, and talk about some provisions next week, but... Let me just wrap this up, and we'll, we'll be done here. Cultural distance uh, complicates 
the clarity of Scripture because what, I'm, what I mean by that is just we're not in the Bible times, right? We're some 2,000 years removed, which means we don't understand the language that it was written in. Um, we often don't understand the culture. I should say the languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. Um, we often don't understand the culture or cultures that the Bible was written in. Um, just because we're, we're 2,000 years away doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. It just means that that's, they're harder to come by, harder to understand. And there's a lot of other things we could talk about that, but there's a, there's a distance between us and them. And so that means we're going to have to work hard, not just because of our immaturity, but work hard because of the distance that we are from the original text, right, to understand what it means. It doesn't, but that doesn't mean, then, that the Bible's not clear. Does that make sense? It's still on, it's still on us, Okay. So next time, we'll, we'll wrap it up, Lord willing, and look at some provisions, right, some provisions for Scripture's clarity. God hasn't left us alone here on this topic. Uh, he's given us so many provisions for gaining clarity, regaining that clarity of, of Scripture and experiencing it ourselves, okay? So we'll go ahead and be done here because I'm already over, and, uh, and if you've got questions, I'm happy to, happy to field those after, all right? You are dismissed.